scripture we're reading is um, 2 Peter uh, 1.16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we... For when we received honor and glory, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in, the, in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'd like to thank uh, Josue, thank Ben uh, for stepping in this morning and uh, being a part of the worship service this morning. I want to thank Adam for once again leading us in worship while uh, Seth and uh, his family are up in Canada participating in uh, ministry uh, at a church there in Canada as well as seeing families. So we're grateful uh, for the ministry God has given to this church through his people. So you've got your Bible open to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in uh, verses 16 through 21 as we uh, continue in this um, wonderful book of the Bible. And um, if you can't find Second Peter, it's towards the end, as we've mentioned. Uh, and if you're, it's not very long, and so it's, on your Bible it might only be a couple of pages. And again, there's no shame in using the table of contents, defining exactly where it is in your Bible. We're going to be reading uh, from a couple of places in Second Peter, as well as some other places in the Bible. So having your Bible out this morning might be uh, a help uh, to you. Uh, sometimes around Christmas time, people will get gifts that don't fit under the Christmas tree. Uh, this might be you, especially if somebody gets a car or a big stereo or, um, or a countertop, uh, you know. Hard to wrap that and put it under the Christmas tree. So what people will do is they'll say, okay, uh, close your eyes and follow me. So you close your eyes and, they, and, you, and you walk them out to the garage. And then everybody gathers around as they're sort of waiting and the, and the thing that they're getting. And then everybody says at one time, what do they say? Okay, open your eyes. And then and the person opens their eyes and they see what it, what it is that they received. And they're excited. And of course, everybody is watching because they want to see their reaction to what they're getting. If it's a, if it's a car, uh, boy, that's exciting. If it's a pony, uh, that's exciting, yet also a lot of work. Uh, you know, so the reaction is what you're, you're getting. Open your eyes and want to see uh, your reaction. So uh, this morning, very uh, similar to that last, last song we sang, uh, Peter is going to be challenging us by the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And look just at a couple of verses before we really get into the meat and potatoes of this passage. In verse 16, Peter says he was an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ. He was an eyewitness to his majesty. Okay? And then look again a little bit further down in verse 19 of Second Peter uh, chapter 1. He says this. He says, We have the prophetic word more uh, fully confirmed to which you also will do well to pay attention as to a lamp in the shining place. Pay attention to what you're looking at, because it says pay attention as to a lamp in a bright place. Uh, we're eyewitnesses to his glory. You need to pay attention to the light. So what we're going to see working its way through this passage here this morning is open your eyes. You need to open your eyes. You're not seeing properly. We're not seeing properly, and we need the word of God to show us what we're missing. And we need to open our eyes and see what is we're missing? Look at verse 16 again, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't follow myths when we made known to you the power 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your eyes to the glory of Jesus. Open your eyes to the glory of Jesus. This is what we mean by myths here in this passage. It it means a lot of things. It can talk about a myth that is a a fable, uh, or a myth here can also refer to historical events. But the point of a myth back in the, the time when this was written is it is a story that carries a life lesson. You might be used to these. We call them what? Fables, Aesop's fables, some of the most famous ones. You remember the famous fable of the tortoise and the hare. Do you know the story of the tortoise and the hare? Okay, so if you, I just bring you up to speed if you haven't been keeping up on the interwebs. Uh, the tortoise and the hare, they're going to race one another. And so they go for a race. As you, I don't know if you know how uh, animals work, but tortoises, tortoise I don't know the plural of tortoise. Now, the tortoise is by nature slower than a hare or a rabbit. Uh, so the rabbit is faster, the tortoise is slower. So the tortoise is plodding along, plodding along, and he never quits. But the hare takes uh, breaks. He stops and takes a nap. He gets a little snack. He goes and sees a movie, does lots of different things. And the tortoise crosses the finish line first, and the hare doesn't. And what's the moral of this fable? Slow and steady win the race. See, we all know this. This is a moral. There was a story, it was told, and it has a moral that's intended to be applied to our life where we say, you know, if you keep at it, you're going to win. If you stick to it, persistence always wins the race. And Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants us to understand very clearly, open your, your eyes to the glory of Jesus. He is not here to be your moral. There is not a moral to the story of the life of Jesus. He did not merely come to be an inspirational example of good living. He did not merely come to say, you know, the moral of the story is be nice to others and buy them the guy in line behind you at Starbucks coffee. Certainly, that was the, the culmination of the life of Christ is that you and I might spend three bucks on the guy behind us in line at coffee, right? And that's exactly what Peter wants us to understand. He's not here to be a moral He is the glory of God on earth. Open your eyes to the glory of Christ. He has come in glory, and that is a a reality of who he is. And the question is, since Jesus is God and he has come in glory and will come in glory, how then should I live recognizing he is God and he is uh, coming back? He did not come here to merely be immoral. When Jesus is a moral of the story, when Jesus has merely lived on planet earth to give us some inspirational examples of how to live, then we have to work all kinds of difficult ways to try and to make Jesus' life compelling to us today. Why is Jesus' life compelling to us today? Well, we're not sure. And so, well, Jesus was nice to people who were less than him, who were poor, and so we should be nice to people who were poor. That seems compelling. Jesus sacrificially gave himself for others, so it seems somewhat compelling. I should be willing to give myself uh, to others and serve others maybe when I have an opportunity. Peter says Jesus' life is not compelling because I can sort of be inspired by him to live like him. Look what he says, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised mist. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the life of Jesus compelling to us today? Because he's coming back. That is why he's compelling. He is going to return and he is going to set things in order according to who he is and what he is up to. And that ought to be really compelling to us today. It, is, it should be compelling to us today that the glory of God one day will break onto the scene in this world and we should reorient our lives around that reality. We need to open our eyes to the fact that Jesus is glorified and he's not playing. He's coming back to make this world and, and rule and reign in this place. And the question is, does our life line up with that or does our life just merely line up with a couple of good moral lessons we take from him walking around for a few years? And Peter won't put up with that. The Bible doesn't put up with that. He's saying, we need to understand he has come in glory. When did Peter see Jesus in his glory? He says he was an eyewitness to his glory. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 and 8. I'm going to read all eight verses of Matthew uh, chapter 17. 
verses 1 through 8. You can either follow along with me in your scripture. They will not be on the screens uh, because, um, well, because I was late this week. I didn't get the text to the people who do that. So judge me all you want. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. This is what Peter is referring to when he says he was an eyewitness to the glory of Christ. He's referring to this moment. We call it the transfiguration. That is when Jesus, although humbled as a man, uh, revealed his glory momentarily to three of his disciples. Here's what it says. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and and he led them up onto a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him and Peter said to Jesus Lord it is good that we are here if you wish I'll make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes... They saw no one but Jesus only. So Jesus takes these three disciples up onto the mountain, and he is changed so that they can see his glory and his power and his majesty. And a cloud descends on him, and God the Father speaks to them from this cloud. Notice it says the cloud was what? It was a bright cloud. That's a weird cloud. Have you ever been in a cloud? Does it get brighter the more cloudy it gets? No, this is a cloud that is filled with the glory of God the Father, making known to them the glory of Christ. And he is saying to the disciples while Peter is talking, notice, while he was speaking, God talked. He wasn't going to wait. No, no, no. Your talking is a problem. So God interrupts him and says, this is my son. Remember, they're beholding him in glory. Up to this point in their life, they had only seen him in his humiliation. And so the Father reveals to these three disciples the glory of Christ, and they responded the way everyone who sees God in his glory responds. They fell on their faces and were terrified. And that's the appropriate, expected response when people see the glory of God. But Jesus comforted them, and they were able to stand up after the event had passed. So his glory was revealed. He tells them just shortly after this section, don't tell anybody about this until after I am raised. So what is going to happen is he wants these disciples to be eyewitnesses to his glory before his resurrection. So when people later on after Jesus is raised, somebody could say, well, yeah, he was, he was a guy and he raised from the dead, but that doesn't make him God. Peter, James, and John will say, oh, no, no, no. He was God before his death on the cross. He was God after his death on the cross. He was God after the resurrection. Jesus is God himself before, during, and after. No beginning, no end. And they were eyewitnesses to his glory. God revealing to them that Jesus is who he says he is. And their, their life ought to be fit to the reality that Jesus is God himself. It is no wonder then that Uh, Peter and James would be martyred because they're not so concerned about their life at this point. They have seen the glory of Christ both before his resurrection as well as after. So Peter now, the eyewitness to the glory of Christ, is coming to these believers in 2 Peter and saying, I'm an eyewitness to his glory. I'm an eyewitness to who this is. There isn't just some trite, live your life a little better because Jesus was a nice guy lesson here. There is a Jesus is God himself. He is coming back. Are you ready? Lesson here. The response Peter wants the readers of his, of his scripture to have is the same one he had on the mountain, which is a little bit of what? Terror. If Jesus were to show up today, would I be okay with it? If Jesus were to walk in onto my life right now, is everything cool? And Peter wants us to confront that reality, both as believers and those who have not believed to say 
is my life lined up to Jesus glorified or is my life lined up to Jesus is a really good fable with some real good life lessons to follow? And Peter says, any application of Christ to our life that is less than Jesus is God glorified is going to miss the mark. Peter isn't the only one that figured this out by the Holy Spirit. Paul did too in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn with me if you'd like to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. 19 verses I'm going to read. And it's about the resurrection of Christ and the glory of Christ. I thought about just summarizing it, but I thought he wrote it better than I would summarize it. So I'm just going to read it to you. First Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 19. This will just take a minute, but listen closely. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Let me read that again in case you didn't quite hear that. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is Futile, you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all, we are of all people most to be pitied. I don't think this guy likes Christians. Seems a little wound up. Verse 19 is the the key verse of this passage. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what he was saying. Because he was talking to believers who wanted to believe in Jesus, but didn't want to believe in a bunch of religious hokey pokey. He said, well, Jesus was a nice guy. He walked around. Looks like he did some miracles. But certainly he wasn't raised from the dead. And absolutely he wasn't God. What we need to do is take this guy's life It was really inspiring, and we need to make application. uh, The slow and steady win the race. Good guys finish first. Be nice to people who aren't nice to you. Turn the other cheek. Some really, really good life lessons of Jesus. And what the Bible tells us, if Jesus for you is inspirational quotes to cross-stitch onto pillows and to try to put into your personal life, you are wasting your life. Jesus is only worth believing if he's raised from the dead and we anticipate eternity with him forever. If the only reason to follow Jesus is to come up with some nice inspirational quotes and some reasons to give the guy a couple of bucks on the corner or a reason to be nice to your neighbor or a reason to help somebody with their trash, 
The Bible is very clear what that means. You are to be pitied. The only reason to follow Jesus is he's coming back in glory. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. If he's not coming in glory, why in the world did you get up early on a Sunday? I mean, the weather is great. There are lakes aplenty. If Jesus is not raised and you come down here to get a couple of life lessons to be inspired for tomorrow, we're not selling that. What Jesus came to do was die on a cross and give you life that lasts forever. So if this afternoon somebody busts into your house and kills you because you love Jesus, you're good. That's what Second Peter is getting at. Open your eyes to the glory of Jesus. Every religion on planet earth has the top 10 naughty things people shouldn't do. If you want a bunch of things you shouldn't do and some good things you should do, you, there's a whole bunch of other places to go than here. What we have is God himself glorified and dying for us on the cross. Amen? Amen. Jesus as a moral is lame. Jesus has the top 10 tips to a good life. Jesus is trying to have the best kind of life I can have right now is lame. He's not worth it. Jesus in glory says, I can spend the rest of my life in significant suffering and glory in the joys of salvation forever. Here's the problem with morals too. Saying, oh, there's a problem with it now? I didn't realize that, okay. All morals at a certain point break down, okay? So think about the tortoise and the hare. You, never, you didn't realize coming here we do a theological analysis of the tortoise and the hare. Here's the whole problem with that moral. The slow and steady win the race, right? So, okay, that seems well. But what's the problem? I think the fast and steady win the race. The problem is slow and steady win the race only when you have a fast and unsteady hare. How does the slow and steady tortoise do against a hare who's got his act together? So now all of a sudden you've got a fable that falls apart. And this happens in every moral. Good things come to those who wait. And sometimes they don't. Right? Boy, if you treat people well, they will treat you well. Right? That's a moral we live by. Except what? Sometimes they don't. Keep your head down, keep at it, and things will work out in the long run. Or you might not work out in the long run. Peter is writing to a group of people, and I hate to tell you this, i got bad news. He's telling them, follow Jesus, you will likely suffer and most likely die. That's the people he's writing to in 2 Peter. It's, it's Christians under persecution. And his point is, but don't worry about it. Jesus is glorified, so you're fine. And morals don't work for Christians in persecution. But when we have the blessing of not being under persecution, which, thank God, we don't. I mean, I'm taking it. Don't, don't, I'm not asking for persecution. But we need to be really careful we don't reduce the glory of Christ to a couple of really good tips on, on good Christian living. Jesus came to change the world and to change our hearts. And we want Jesus who can be the fairy dust of prosperity on our otherwise good life. And Jesus isn't having it. He says, I want to take your life shake it up, turn it upside down, and remake you into my image so that when I show up in glory, you're ready. Open your eyes to the glory of Jesus. Jesus in, in glory means we can endure suffering because it won't last forever, and he is going to come in victory. Look at verse 19. Open your eyes because it's dark. Some people like outlines. I do too. What was the first one? Open your eyes to the glory of Jesus. Second one, open your eyes because it's dark. The problem with spiritual blindness is you don't know you're blind. The Bible tells us we're blind. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining where? In a dark place. What the Bible is telling us is the world we live in now is a world of darkness and we need to find light, and the light is in the Word of God. What he's saying here in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's saying this, all of the Old Testament prophecies anticipated God coming in glory as Christ to bring redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and I stood on a mountain, Peter says, 
saw the glory of God revealed, and I agree, he fulfills all of the Old Testament scripture. He fulfills all of prophecy, is fulfilled in Christ. Peter says that not from a theological argument, but from a I saw him argument. I know the Old Testament, I know what it says, and I've seen the guy, and that's him. So all of prophecy is confirmed in Jesus, Peter says, because I am an eyewitness to his glory. I am an eyewitness to the light of Christ. Peter says this, we need to understand we're living in darkness. I don't know if you noticed yet, we're not in heaven yet. Right? I mean, maybe some of you aren't sure. April 15th is coming. That will remind you. You're not in heaven yet. All right, and so what he's saying is all the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. Look how he describes the Old Testament prophecy, second part of verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading Isaiah, and when you're reading Ezekiel, and when you're reading Job, and when you're reading Daniel, and Genesis, and Ruth, I'm making an assumption you're reading these books. They weren't written by some brilliant authors. They were written by God, by the Holy Spirit, through people. So the, the words recorded in the Old Testament, which all anticipate Christ himself, were people reading as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing down what God would have them write in their own voice, in their own vocabulary, with their own personality. But it's the work of God by the Holy Spirit communicating the truth of what God is doing, sending a Savior to save people from their sins. So the Holy Spirit came and told us, told us the truth that we're living in darkness and we need a Savior, and that Savior is our light. Open your eyes because it's dark. The only way to see in the dark is to see Christ. The only way to have hope is to have hope in Christ. The only way to have a certainty of what your future is going to be is to have your future hooked to Christ. Not to your retirement plan, not to your health, not to your family, not to your reputation, but instead hooked and attached to the glory of Christ himself. And the only way to experience renewal in God, connection with God and relationship, is to work really hard and be as good as you can. I'm checking you. I'm just making sure you're still with me. Okay, who's good at being good? Remember, good is great. What's great? <laughs> I'm going to write you out, Merle. <laughs> What's great about being good, if you want to get, and again, all religions do this except a biblical Christianity. The, the idea is to be good. And really, the idea of being good is, is a little bit silly. But So here's the illustration. I've said this before, but it's good to be reminded. Being good in most religion, religions is like running from a bear. And what is the important thing? How do you get away from the bear? Just be faster than the guy next to you. Right? You've heard that joke. So that's how most religions are. And we say it in silly ways. Oh, I blew it. I got totally drunk last weekend. Just so you know, the Bible says we shouldn't get drunk. But at least I'm not Hitler. See, we just did it. I'm being chased by a bear. It's called sin. And it's going to eat me. But all I got to do is be a little better than Hitler. We're really setting the bar. Like, right? And, so, and then some people come to church. You think I'm kidding, but I am not kidding. Some people come to church hoping that one person is here. So like, oh, thank goodness. At least I'm not like that dirtbag. Like, I thought I had a bad week, and I wasn't even sure if I could come to church because it seems like you're supposed to get all kind of cleaned up before you show up. If that guy can be here, I guess I can be. I'm not doing too bad. That guy has made a ton of bad decisions. He makes my bad decisions look like good decisions. And this is how religion works. And that's not how relationship with God works. Relationship with God works by us admitting the things I want to do are wrong, and what God wants to do is make me new, and the only way to be made new is to trust Jesus. Jesus died to pay for the penalty of all of my sin. Now, some of us are here saying this, you know, I sin, but I don't think there should be a penalty. You know, I don't understand the big deal. Sure, I've done things wrong, but everybody does, so what's the big deal? Well, the reason we can say something as silly as that is we've never stood in the presence of a holy God. 
and had our socks blown off by the holiness of God. What we have to understand to have a relationship with God who is perfect, we have to be made righteous. And the only way to have that happen is to trust Jesus died for me and Jesus is raised from the dead. That means I have to admit I do things God doesn't want me to do. I am greedy. I am envious. I am a liar. I am a cheat. I am not faithful. I am not trustworthy. I am full of lust and greed and idolatry. Whatever your pet sin is. Some of you don't have a pet sin. You have a zoo of sins. I'm not looking at you, Merle. <laughs> and, and we say, well, so what do I do? Jesus paid all of, he paid and, he, and it's washed away. And we're made righteous. All of it's washed away. We receive forgiveness. But in order to receive that forgiveness, we have to agree with God that our ways are not his ways and we need his hope and his life. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will receive forgiveness of sins. For whatever you've done, it doesn't matter. What you have done, it doesn't matter. What you will do, you have his forgiveness by trusting in him. And since he is raised from the dead, we are assured that we will be raised with him and live forever. We need to open our eyes. Jesus is the light in the dark, play, in the dark place. If you are Captain Christian Awesome, you don't need the light. And that's a terrible place to be. If your Christian life is like most of ours, you wake up, you hit the floor and say, boy, I failed worse yesterday than I thought I could. Does he still love me? Jesus, I need your light. He says this, we have this prophetic word fully confirmed. Pay attention to the lamp shining in the dark place. Okay, Jesus is still there. He's still with me. I'm still in the light. Find hope, find Jesus. There's no other hope to be had. Now, there are other hopes to find. They are all temporary. You can find hope in the success of our life here. Find hope in a successful family and a successful job. You can find hope in having great friends. You can find hope in having great recreation. Lots of good fun to have out there. All those things find hope. All of those things, at a certain point, the sheen starts to wear off. It's like, okay, what do I got to do now? I got to find a new hobby. But the Bible tells us when we find Jesus, we find hope. Where do we find Christ? We find Jesus in the Bible. The words of light are the scripture. When we find our Christian life slogging through the darkness, we need to find ourselves pulled, excuse me, pulled back to the light, getting into the scripture and learning and loving Jesus more. Open your eyes, it's dark. How do we open our eyes as believers to the light? By getting into our Bibles. If you're not a Christian, the only way to open your eyes to the light is to put your faith in Christ for salvation. That's how we do it. Christians, we've got to be in our Bibles and know the promises of Christ. We have to see the light because we're in the dark place. The command is very clear. Pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place. Okay, last part. Open your eyes. What were the first two headings? I forget. I didn't really. I'm trying to get you to think. Open your eyes to the glory of Jesus. Good. Open your eyes. Secondly, because it's dark, but the light is coming. Open your eyes because it's dark. Third part we want to cover here, because the light is coming. So the understanding here we want to have is that we have a message of hope from God that it is Christ who is coming. Look what it says, second part of verse 19. Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The question is, how can we endure the darkness and difficulty we're going to face in the day in and day out of living here uh, until our end comes? Darkness endures, is, it can be endured because the hope of Christ's return is certain. Uh, our attention ought to be on the return of Christ. He is coming and the light will dawn one day. The power of God will be revealed. The reason we can endure the day in and day out of difficulty here is because one day he is coming back. One day he will return and bring his hope to us. Just something, we're going to cover this in more detail next week, so I don't want to get into, it, into a lot of detail. 
But there were false teachers who were coming into the people that Peter's writing to. And these false teachers were teaching two primary things, uh, a lot of things, but two primary things. Number one, Jesus is so awesome, you can do whatever you want. Jesus is cool, bro. Like whatever you're into, he's into. Don't worry about it. Whatever that looks like for you. Whatever kind of sin you're into, you know, maybe he calls it sin, but it's still, it's all good. That's one thing they're teaching. Second thing they were teaching was just simply this. Uh, I don't think he's come back. Okay, it's been a couple of years. We're pretty sure that he's not returning. So it, this is what's really great about the false teachers, Jesus. You get to do whatever you want, and there's never going to be any facing the judge. And Peter is writing saying, boy, that's a dangerous way to look at Jesus. Jesus calls us to the glory of living his ways. And secondly, there's a day he's going to come. We're going to look over our life and go, oh, man. I'm sure we're going to say it just like that. Oh, bummer. I would have done a couple of things different now that I see his glory. And, and this is what he wants us to do. He wants us to open our eyes. The light is coming. Jesus is returning. The day will dawn. The morning star will rise. We will see him with our eyes. And in that moment, boom, we will say, I am so glad he came back. Oh, man, I wasn't as ready as I should have been. Those are going to be simultaneous experiences in that moment. And then we will be washed over by the, blood of, by the grace of Christ once again. But we need to understand, pay attention. The day is coming, and our focus of our life needs to be on Jesus until he's standing with us. Okay, look down a little couple of pages maybe in your Bible. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 8. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 8. I'm going to read these eight verses. Without a lot of explanation, so you're going to have to listen fast and um, pay attention here, because this is where he's going. Uh, but we're going to be here in a couple of be in chapter three in a couple of weeks. Peter says this. This is this is. Uh, did I say first? Did I say first Peter? This is totally wrong. Did you turn to first Peter? Yeah, it's funny. Because I'd be reading it. What's your problem? Why is nobody? It's second Peter chapter three. Verses 1 through 8. Um, if you were here last week, remember, I said I'm going to say 1 Peter a lot. So if I say 1 Peter, it means 2 Peter. I'm giving you more time. You got there? 2 Peter 3, 1 through 8. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all these things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Oh, it's been so long. He's not coming back. You can do whatever he wants. It seems like things are going on and on, just as they always have. How many days has it been since Christ's resurrection? Two days. I'm just doing the math here. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. Now, to us, a day is like a day. And it depends on your age. If you're a little one, like my six-year-old, when are we going to dinner? In a couple hours. That's forever. Right? You ever seen that one? You get a little older. When's Christmas? Tomorrow. Like, already, I mean, it's, it's August. Have you started? Have you got your list together? Christmas is literally tomorrow. That's how, that's how time changes. Now make yourself a little older, you know, like God. 
eternity past to eternity future, how long is a thousand years? A couple of days. So we think he's never coming. It's been forever. And he said, what are you talking about? It's just been a couple of days. I'll come when I see fit. Do not make this serious error, whether you're Christian or you don't call yourself a Christian. If we assume that because he is delayed, he is not coming, that is a dangerous assumption to make. It is a serious error in the life of a believer to live our life as though he was not coming right away. That is what Peter's argument is. We should be living each and every day with the assumption we will be face to face with the glory of God this afternoon. If then that is true, how then should we live? Do not make this serious error. So many Christians get worked up about whatever sin they struggle with. And that's fine. Get worked up about it. It's fine. It's also forgiven. So that's cool. But we never consider the more serious error of living as though Jesus is not returning. In fact, one of the answers to how do I overcome this sin I can't struggle with just might be coming to grips with the fact he might be returning right now. Okay, let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Matthew chapter 24, and this is the longest section we're going to read this morning. Now, I'm not just delaying on purpose, but if I finish too soon, the stakes will be too rare. So I do have a... I'm not supposed to be done between, before 12.30, so I'm kidding. It's not that. It's, it's not 12.30. It's fine. Matthew chapter 24. Let's see what Jesus has to say about it. He also talks about Noah, as Peter did. My guess is Peter, when he was writing that passage in 2 Peter 3, he was remembering these words of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Here's what it says. I'm reading Matthew chapter 20, 24. Verses 26 through 46. Listen to what Jesus has to say in this passage. Did you find it? Okay, good. But concerning that day and hour, the day we were just talking about, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, excuse me, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and they were giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, just stop there. We're in verse, end of verse 39, just quick break. So he's saying, the argument is things are going on as they always have, so therefore God must not be returning. Jesus' argument is the opposite. Since things are going on as they always have, he's coming at any moment. The fact that things are going like they were in the days of Noah, marrying, drinking, eating, building houses, everything going along uninterrupted, that is a certain sign that his coming is near, not that his coming is far. That's the argument he's making. Look at verse 40. Again, Matthew chapter 24. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taking, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When is the Son of Man coming? No one knows, except this little piece of information. When is the Son of Man coming? When you do not expect. That's the only bit of information we do know. If you expect him to come, then he won't be. I always say this, when is the one time he is not coming? Whatever book has just been released saying he knows he's coming on October 31st, 2019, okay, well, you know he's not coming that day. Now we've eliminated one day. The only time we know he is coming is the hour you, not unbelieving world out there, he's talking to his disciples, you do not expect. You don't know when he was coming, so therefore we ought to live knowing his coming could be any time. If we knew when he was coming, we would save all of our good living 
for the moment before he was coming. That's what he's saying here. If we knew when he was coming, what we would do is whatever we want until the day he was returning. And he says, I want you to be called to live your whole life to the glory of Christ and the glory of his return, knowing his coming could be any moment. I want you to be ready. That's what he says. Verse 44, it's a command from Jesus to you. Therefore, you also must be ready. How do you make sure you're ready for the return of Jesus? First thing, have your sins forgiven by trusting Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness. There's more to it. Look at verse 45. This is for those of us who have put our faith in Christ for forgiveness. It tells us exactly how to be ready. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. What is a wise servant? What's the forward-thinking servant of Christ look like? Verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Who was the blessed servant? The one who was busy about the master's work when the master shows up. What does it mean to be ready as a follower of Christ for the light of Christ's return, to be so busy about the work of Christ that he interrupts you. To be so busy about what he has called you to do, to faithfully live for him, that he interrupts your work and you don't... Oh, oh, you're back. Oh, sorry. I was... Hey, good. I'm done. Check it out. But most of us... Oh, I shouldn't say most of us. Some of us think being ready for Christ is setting up a lawn chair on our deck that looks at the eastern horizon with a cup of uh, sweet tea reading left behind. Well, that was rude. That, that, uh, that might have been over the line. I, mean, I don't have a problem with left behind. I'd read the original. It was better. It's called the book of Revelation. Shorter, too. Um, so we say, I'm going to be ready for Jesus. I'm going to sit on my chair. And, and when he shows up, I'm going to be looking at him. That's, what, is that what it says? What does it say? Blessed is the servant whom his, his master will find so doing, meaning faithfully serving the household of God upon his return. To be ready for the light returning, to be ready for the glory of Christ returning, is to be busy about the Father's business in obedience, living a life of holiness and living a life of Christian duty to God and his people. Open your eyes. The light is coming. Be ready by having right relationship with Jesus through faith and be ready by having our priorities defined by his return. What would be important to me now if I knew he was returning tomorrow? And to live my life in that way. Now, some of us, just real quick before we finish, some are seeing, saying, this seems a little extreme. This seems a little like way over the line. You know, I just want to be a good Christian, bro. I want to have my little thing, get a little religion on the side. No room for that for Peter. When you're writing for, to people who are most likely going to be martyred, there's no time for a little bit of Jesus juice on your otherwise good life. This is him writing and saying, this is what the life of Christ looks like in you. To live for his glory and for nothing else. Now, we all do that to some degree in levels of brokenness and difficulty and disobedience and trouble. We're not saying that. that that's exactly a part of, the, prob, of the, the process of living in Christ. But we shouldn't be satisfied with living an otherwise normal life with a little Jesus on the side. Peter's excluding that as an option. Open your eyes to so the glory of Jesus. Open your eyes because it's dark, but the light is coming. A couple of things to take away with you. What moral of the story is your Christian life? How have you taken Jesus and turned him into the slow and steady win the race? How have you taken the life of Christ and boiled it down to a couple of little trinkets of moralism? Good Christians only do these sins. They don't do these really bad ones. You know, I just, you know, show up for church a couple of times a month, you know, try to teach my kids a couple of verses, but otherwise my life is about me. The Bible here is calling us to, to set aside myths. Jesus is not 
the moral of the story. He is the story, and the story is about his glory. Does my life fit into the glory of Christ? He has called me into life of glory in him. Do I need to look at my priorities and say, Jesus is just the moral of the story to me. I need to come to him in repentance and say, Jesus, I don't want you to be the moral. I need you to be the glory. Is my life built on his glory or just a couple of couple of moralistic lessons I want to take with me? Yeah, I'm not done yet. You ready? Next one. If you're not in your Bible, you're in the dark. That's short. It's easy, isn't it? Not reading your Bible, you're in the dark. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm in the dark. Here, I got a great uh, illustration for this. Well, I think it's great. Mr. Amazing. Yeah. So I've noticed with my iPhone, um, if I'm in the bright, if the screen is really bright, and then when I go into a dark room, what happens? Have you seen what the screen does? It dims. And when you're old like me, it's irritating. Well, now I can't read it. Thank you, Mr. iPhone, for knowing how to keep me from reading my phone. Okay? So it dims. Well, this is what happens to us as Christians. Well, we dim down to the level of darkness in the world around us, and we say, well, I don't see This is dark. Well, see, when we take our eyes off the light of Christ through his word, of course the world looks normal. And this is what happens. We self-dim to the level of darkness in the world around us. The way to call our hearts to light in Christ is to see Christ, and the way to see Christ is to be in the word of God. Read the word of God. Look for a way to get into your Bible on a routine basis. Read it, pray, move along. But the only way to see Christ is to be in the Bible. Okay, last thing. And then we're going to close with a, another song. Be ready. I can't fill this in for you, for what it means to be ready for his return, but we are all called to look at our lives and say, how does my life need to be lived where I can say I'm living a way that is seeking to be ready for the return of Christ? What we can look at is the priorities in our life. What does it mean as an employee to be ready for Christ? How do I approach my work? How do I approach my role as a husband? How do I approach my role as a wife or as a child? What does it mean to live the life I have been given as one that is ready for Christ? That is, instead of making these other important things in my life the end, how do these things instead serve the higher purpose, which is the glory of Christ? What does it mean to serve in faithfulness in the body of Christ? What does it mean to serve in faithfulness in the community? What does it mean for me, knowing Christ could return at any time to make sure the people around me know Jesus could come at any time? When Jesus returns, will my neighbor look at me and go, dude, really? I mean, you didn't even mention it. We talked football for hours. You didn't mention the glory of Christ? Be ready. Be busy about the work of the Father until dawn breaks. One of two things is going to happen sometime in your life. Your life is going to end or Jesus is going to return. Be ready, busy about the work of God, faithful at his return, running fast, not at the beginning, but running fast at the finish line. Faithful at the end when Christ calls us home. Open your eyes to the glory of Christ because it's dark, but the light is coming.